Good morning. I'm Lori Campbell, and I'm going to be reading Psalm 96, 2011 NIV. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. For he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. I mean, I want you to say good morning back. It feels really good when you respond. So I'll try try one more time. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, that's great. Yes, Brandon leads the charge on that. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, for shouting it out. Um, This morning, we're going to focus on worship. You might say to yourself, we already have. Yeah, we have, but I want to talk about worship as an essential component of the church and the way in which uh, worship ought to be considered. I begin by making this statement. It's a universal statement. Part of human nature across the globe and throughout human history is that human beings worship. They just do, always have. You don't have to generate it. You don't have to make it happen. It just happens. As a matter of fact, we worship all kinds of things, and in the history of the world, we've worshiped what you might consider to be odd things like the sun, the moon, the stars. We don't so much talk about worshiping sun, moon, and stars, uh, even if we're not part of an organized religion. We don't say that as much anymore, but now sometimes we worship our leaders. We hold them up as ancient Rome did. And almost give them godlike characteristics. Sometimes uh, we worship our heroes. Uh, sports heroes are famous for a form of worship. Uh, I read one time about Michael Jordan, who was all the rage in the 90s, for those of you who remember. He was making a trip to France and he was going to land in Paris, and one of the newspaper writers commented on Michael Jordan's appearance in France. And he said, it's amazing. It's better than the Pope. It's God in the flesh. Seriously, that was written. I don't think he consulted with the Bishop of Notre Dame before he put that in print, but it's, it's almost like that sometimes. 
with our heroes. We, we worship them. We also frequently worship lovers, don't we? The language that we use, it's like we're worshiping them. Or an activity of love, we often worship that. And sometimes, quite frankly, we worship our feelings. We, we bow down to our feelings as if they're worthy of some form of worship. So in order to help us understand what worship is in the context of the Christian church or what it ought to be, I begin with the definition. And it's not my definition. It's actually an etymology of an old word in English, not Latin, in English, called worship. So the old word in English called worship was spelled W-E-O-R-T-H. Just take the E out, worth, okay? That was the first part of the word that defined worship, worth. The second part of the word that was worship in ancient or old English was Skype. And Skype was routinely a word that was used when it it was the object of something, right? So you bestowed worship or honor on somebody who was worthy of it, the king, a military leader, somebody else. You bestowed honor. So put together, the old English word combines two ideas. One is just worthiness, and the other is to bestow worthiness or to, shall we say, create worthiness. Now, I want to hasten to add, it's, it's not true that we create worthiness for God. God is worthy of praise in spite of the fact that we do or do not, right? He's worthy of praise. But the notion of worship at its core, at its core, is to bestow honor, dignity, and everything else we can imagine on God because God is worthy. That is the heart of worship. Now, um, when we think of worship, we sometimes think of uh, categories of worship. We'll discuss that just a little bit. But I want to break worship down into just three parts. And the first part is the subject of worship. I think you're going to have to run that thing up there. The subject of worship. What is the subject of worship? You could also call it the object of worship, but I use subject because I wanted all of them to be S's. Okay, so I got three S's. So the subject of worship or the object of worship. What is the subject of worship? The subject of worship is God, period. That's the proper object of worship exclusively. Now, it may seem obvious, right? We say, well, that's a big duh, Bob. Yeah, but we need to remind ourselves of it. Because sometimes our view of worship can be skewed when we forget that that's what it's about. It's not about us. I remember on one occasion, um, one of the elders criticizing some worship music. It was back when our beloved doobie, Bob Dubinsky, was here. And uh, the elder was, you know, sort of criticizing, and, and Doobie looked at him and said, what do you bring into worship? 
what are you bringing to worship? And that person was struck and never forgot it. In other words, he was saying, Doobie was saying, it's not about a performance, it's not what we do, it's what you bring. So the proper object of worship is focusing on God. How do you do that? Was this question. Sometimes we think of worship as um, things that are instrumental. We think of worship as things that are actually vehicles of praise. We think of worship as the sacraments, which we will celebrate in a couple of weeks. We think of worship as songs, which we always sing. We think of worship as prayers, which we always do. We think of worship as fill in the blank. We think of worship as the Bible. You see, the reality is we don't worship any of those things. All of them are tools or instruments to worship God. Now, again, it might seem obvious, but just pause for a minute and ask yourself whether or not on occasion the instrument has turned into the worship. We don't want that to happen, right? Because worship is about honoring God. That's why all varieties of worship can be appropriate. I I count myself to be privileged to have worshiped with people all over the world because of meeting missionaries and being in their congregations. And I tell you, it is, it is remarkable. <laughs> the kind of expressions of worship that are so different, except that they're not different in one way, they're directed to God. They're things I would never think to do, and honestly, there's been occasions where I haven't felt comfortable doing them, with people who are worshiping. I just didn't feel like I wanted to do it. But it's appropriate if it's directed towards God. You remember the occasion where David was bringing the ark into the city. And it was a celebration. And on that particular day, he danced before the Lord with the people as the ark came into the city. And his wife was looking out the window, Micah, and she disdained him for dancing before the Lord in front of all the people. And she let him know it. So that was inappropriate for a king. David's response was, I'm going to be even more dignified than this when I worship God. Um, I think it's interesting that Micah, David's wife, seem offended by David's worship, but God did not. Why do I use that illustration? Because there's a variety of experiences of worship that we experience in this church. And sometimes you may think, that's inappropriate. Really? Really? Let's not be David's wife. Okay? Let's not be Micah. Let's focus on God. And look at the other who seems to do something that's just a little offbeat in your mind or a little too expressive and let him do it. 
I remember on one occasion, uh, we had a young woman in connection a number of years ago now who couldn't help herself whenever it was time to sing, she had to dance. Now, she realized that this seemed to be bothersome to some people. So out of courtesy, I guess, or maybe out of our prodding, she decided she would move to the back of the sanctuary whenever we sang, and right back there under that overhang, she would dance while we sang because it was an expression of worship, and it was appropriate, and I shouldn't criticize it because the object of worship is God. The means of worship is only a tool to get us there. The second major point um, is this. The subject of worship is God. The substance of worship is bringing an offering. So at the heart of the Old Testament worship, it was bringing an offering to God. They would bring an animal. They bring a grain offering. They would bring songs of praise. They would bring things to God. So, let me ask you, is that the way we view worship? Or do we come to worship in order to receive a blessing? I've heard many people say to me, I really had a bad week. I think I need to go to church. Why? Because they want a blessing. They want a pickup. They want a shot in the arm. You know, there's nothing really wrong about coming to worship expecting that God will give you some insight and entering into praise will raise your spirits and give you a new perspective. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's your pure objective for worship, you probably got it wrong. Your objective for worship ought to be bringing an offering to God. And in the act of bringing that offering to God, blessing will come. So many expressions of bringing an offering to God. But in the Old Testament, not only was it bringing a sacrifice, but every part of the body was used. More than today, we use it even. It was a full body experience. And sometimes we look around and feel uncomfortable with other people's full body experience in worship. But we shouldn't. I mean, most of the time, people bow their heads and close their eyes during prayer. Suppose you glance down the aisle and you saw somebody with their hands up and eyes open looking to the heavens. Inappropriate? Not at all. When I grew up, my parents, when we had a prayer before the meal, would ask me to fold my hands. I think mostly so I wouldn't punch my brothers. But the point was that became sort of appropriate for prayer in many people's minds. And you got the picture of the old man, you know what I'm talking about? The old man sitting at the table with the bread, with hands folded. That seemed to be the most reverent form of prayer. Well, maybe, but not necessarily. I'll never forget uh, as a young guy watching someone in a very public service uh, not close their eyes in prayer and staring down. And I thought, now there's somebody who's not a Christian. Seriously, I thought that. And later I, I realized how foolish it was. The man was an Episcopalian. 
And that's the way he prayed. And he was just as sincere as I was. Prayed. And he was just as sincere as I was. So it's a full body experience bringing this offering of worship to God. And along the way, Paul picked up that theme in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And he said, what I want you to do is offer your entire self. Offer your body, you, as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Give it your all, whatever that means. So first, there's a subject of worship, and that's God. Second, there's the substance of worship, and that's bringing an offering. And third, there's a synthesis of worship. So you know the word dialectic. It's really an important word in our English language. It actually comes from a more simple form, dialect. What dialect means is multiple languages. And if you think of it in that context, multiple languages contribute to meaning. And very frequently, we analyze other languages in order to understand our own word and what it means and to plumb the depths of that word, right? Dialect, multiple languages. There's a dialectic in worship. And it could go a lot of different directions, but I just emphasize two. One is the dialectic of honor and worth and majesty as related to God. And the other is the idea of God's personal nature. So you've got God's majestic nature expressed in worship, and you have God's personal nature expressed in worship. And they ought to integrate and be side by side in our worship. Neither one should be neglected. I think the beautiful example of this is the Psalms themselves. So you think of Psalm 19, for instance. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament declares his handiwork day after day. It pours forth speech night after night. There's no language that's absent from this declaration of majesty to God. As a matter of fact, when you think about the majesty of God, you're overwhelmed by words, and words overwhelm you. On one occasion, the prophet Isaiah was trying to articulate what he was describing as the majestic nature of God. And if you have a Bible and you want to turn to Isaiah 40, that's where I'm going to go in verse 12. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked out the heavens? Who has held the dust? of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? You can, you can hear that sarcastic nature of the, of the words. Who Who has taught him knowledge or shown him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on scales. He weighs the islands as those they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all nations are nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless. 
and less than nothing? With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions a silver chain for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground and he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? Who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them forth, each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. If our worship is to focus on the majesty of God, that might be one of the good places to start. You know what he's doing there, what a lot of the times the psalmist is doing? They're removing any limitations from their mind concerning who God is. Just eliminating all limitations. And thinking of the highest, grandest, biggest, loftiest, strongest thing, and then just saying, God's above it. That's what worship is about. But of course, we also know that worship is about magnifying, glorifying, not just a majestic creator, but a personal redeemer. And so our worship music, our prayers, everything else ought to include that as well. It ought to be side by side with our exclamations of majesty. I, um, I think that we um, often uh, create trophy politicians or trophy athletes or trophy scientists, and you say, trophy what? I mean, what we do is we elevate people who maybe not a few years back, but now have come to faith, and then we elevate them up onto a pedestal, and they're like, the trophy? Man, wouldn't it be great if he believed in Jesus? Really? It'd be great if anybody did. But sometimes we elevate people for the purpose of trying to make God seem more majestic. At the risk of doing that, so I'm telling you what I'm about to do, which is to present a trophy candidate. I'm going to use the words of an author who spoke about Albert Einstein, a trophy scientist, shall we say. Not a Christian as far as I know. Charles Meisner put it this way. He said, the design of the universe is very, very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why 
Einstein had so little use for organized religion, though he strikes me as a basically very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God, ouch, and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. I know nothing about Albert Einstein's religious perspective, but that strikes me. Because I know a lot of scientists who are not believers. And they're enamored by the beauty of the universe and the intricate design. They haven't yet seen the creator. But sometimes I wonder if we haven't exalted the creator high enough for them to see him through the grandeur of the universe. Maybe our language concerning God, maybe our worship is too small. Maybe. I say that we ought to consider the majesty of God in worship. We ought to consider his personal nature as well. How do we do that? By remembering the image of a father, our father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. I know some people struggle with the image of father because they don't have good fathers. There's a lot of other images that could be used and some of those have their problems as well. But we can look in the scripture and see God described as a mother hen who cares for her children. We can look at the scriptures and see Jesus as the good shepherd in David's words at Psalm 23 as the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. We could look at the Song of Songs or Hosea and find the lover, the one who is passionately in love with us, seeks us out to the end. We could just look at Jesus and realize that he was a friend to sinners, those who were undeserving to be in the presence of a worthy God and we can find the personal nature of God. So I end with questions about our worship, yours personally and ours corporately. And here are the questions. Number one, is our worship truly focused upon God or is it more about ourselves? Somebody's really good because I didn't have that in the slide after the first service. They put it in for you. <laughs> Is it? Is it? Second question. Do we come to corporate worship to bring an offering? Or do we come to receive a blessing? What's your motivation? What's primary? They're both important. But what's primary? 
Third question. Does our corporate worship create a divine synthesis of majesty and intimacy, of judgment and grace, of lament over sin and joy over mercy? Do we have a proper balance? That's a question for us and for each of us individually. Next, is our worship practical? Is it with all our being? Is it what Paul identifies in Romans 12.1? Do we present our bodies as living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable act of worship? Let me put it differently. Do you think of going to work tomorrow as an act of worship Do you think of that as an offering to God? Or are you just in the weeds, just hammering through the day, just trying to get it right? So here's my admonition. Let's all evaluate our personal and corporate worship and then make a commitment to pursue God because he's worthy and to let our lives reflect that and our worship reflect that. If you're like me, the answer to whether or not you measure up in this regard would be a resounding no. I don't measure up, but I see the standard. Am I ever going to be perfect? No. Are we ever going to be perfect in our corporate worship? No. But we can keep our focus and we can make a commitment. June 12, 1981. That's a long time ago now. I made a commitment to a woman, my wife. That commitment changed my life forever. And I have been somewhat committed and other times better committed Have I been perfect? No. What's kept me on track? Coming back to my commitment. So let's return to our commitment to allow God to be the center of our life and worship to be all about him. Let's pray. God, you're definitely worthy of our worship and praise. And uh, you must look down on us and smile sometimes. And other times, want to shout, no, that's not it. And maybe we allow your word to be that vehicle, that voice that tells us that's not it. You don't have it right. We certainly want to allow your spirit to minister to us in such a way that you redirect us and help us to place priority where it ought to be. And we confess, Lord, that we're just self-centered human beings. And it's really easy for us to lapse into it being all about us and what we can get out of it. Lord, just help us to stop it. Help us to stop it.
and to focus on you, your majesty, and your intimacy as we glorify you in spirit and in truth. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.